Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffBeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Monday, so this is an archive show. First published as a newspaper column sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on April 7th, 2013, under the headline, Massive 1934 Portland Dock Strike Paralyzed the State. Here we go. When the gunfire broke out and he heard the bullets sizzling overhead, visiting New York Senator Robert Wagner was dumbfounded. This can't be true, he said. Well, it was. The bullets had come from four special police guards, a part of a group of 200 guards hired by the city of Portland to keep the peace on the waterfront during a big longshoreman's strike. They were not professional cops. Senator Wagner had been sent to Oregon by President Roosevelt himself to see if he could help the two sides settle their differences. Reaching out to both sides, he'd accepted an offer to tour the picket lines. Quite why these guards decided it would be a good idea to open fire on the two cars isn't clear, but it's a safe bet they had no idea there was a U.S. senator in one of them. They both got into considerable trouble over the incident, as you can imagine. Well, the Portland waterfront strike of 1934 was by far the biggest labor dispute in state history. It was part of a West Coast-wide strike by the International Longshoremen's Association Union, the same strike that resulted in two deaths in San Francisco on Bloody Thursday. Although there were no deaths in Portland, plenty of people got black eyes and fat lips, and a few got considerably worse than that. The strike got its start with some new federal legislation, the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933. Among other things, this law, for the first time ever, gave unions government recognition and a right to strike. This news stirred up some trouble on the Portland waterfront, which had been quiet for some time. The local International Longshoremen's Association Union chapter had been crushed in the strike of 1922, and for most of the intervening years, it was a union in name only. Freed from labor pressure, the employers had drifted into some bad habits. Chief among these was allowing the staff in their hiring halls to abuse their positions, taking bribes and kickbacks and blacklisting workers that they didn't like. So throughout the early 1930s, resentment had been building among the longshoremen. But without a union to work through, they'd essentially bottled it up. Until now. And suddenly, the union was growing again. The employers' organization, the Waterfront Employers Association, responded to the new legislation by doing two things that almost certainly would have solved the problem had it not been for their history of corrupt hiring. First, they gave all the longshoremen a raise— They'd cut their pay from 90 to 75 cents an hour over the previous two years, and now they boosted that back up to 85 cents. Secondly, they started a brand new company-controlled labor union for their workers to join. And when representatives of the ILA asked to meet with the employers, the employers refused to talk to them, claiming the sole legitimate voice for waterfront workers was the company union they'd just chartered. For several months, the union pressed its case while rapidly growing in strength. It wanted the employers completely out of the business of hiring dock workers. That was the core demand. Now, the only way to accomplish that was a closed shop, one where you have to be a union member to work there, and the union makes all the hiring decisions. 
Well, for reasons that will be obvious to any business owner reading this, that was not something the employers were going to be okay with. The ironic part about this is that by failing to maintain a professional hiring system, they'd set the whole situation up. It was a bit like economic karma. Finally, after failed intervention by President Roosevelt himself, the workers voted to go out on strike on May 9th. When the decision to strike came, many employers actually welcomed it. They remembered the strike in 1922, which had been an overwhelming victory for them, and expected to have an even easier time crushing this one. The major difference they saw between 1922 and 1934 was that now there was a depression on, and Portland was knee-deep in unemployed men who could be hired as strike breakers to work shifts for union guys who were out on strike, what the union guys would call scabs, to keep the port open. Well, this turned out to be a major miscalculation. As it turned out, 1922 had taught the union people a few lessons, and most of these were in the area of public relations. Well before the strike began, union people started going out into the community to make their case with the small farmers, line cops, members of other unions, and even the unemployed. After the strike started, they welcomed unemployed families to union food kitchens, so that nobody would have to become a strike breaker in order to feed his family. They also added a demand to their list, six-hour workdays, which would mean that although the union members would get smaller paychecks, employers would have to hire more workers to get the job done. The idea being that perhaps some of those unemployed people would be able to join them in the union and actually get back to work. The union's overtures to the police also made a huge difference, as one of the first things the employers wanted to do was get the police and, if possible, the National Guard to come protect the strikebreakers with armed force so that they could reopen the port. They had good cooperation from the police chief, but from the line cops, not so much. That would change later, but mostly because the city hired 200 special policemen who were far less sympathetic to strikers than the regular patrol cops were. Well, the first thing the employers did was to advertise for strikebreakers and assemble a large group of them in the company hiring hall with buses ready to take them to the docks. But union members surrounded the hiring hall and disabled the buses in various ways. They nearly tipped one of them over. The strikebreakers never even got near the docks. A few days later, they tried another approach, an approach that had worked out really well for them in 1922, and that was to bring the worn-out passenger liner Admiral Evans upriver from Astoria and moor it at the dock. The plan was to make of it a floating hotel for strikebreakers so that they wouldn't have to cross the Union's picket lines to go to work. Well, a group of strikers actually managed to reach the ship and clamber aboard, and they started a big free-for-all fistfight with the bulls guarding it, one of whom was tossed into the river. Of course, the union guys say that he jumped into the river. Yeah, sure. They also cut the Admiral Evans loose, and it had to be retrieved as it was drifting down the river. All in all, it ended up not being much of a success for the employers. After several strikebreakers and truck drivers were beaten after crossing picket lines, Mayor Joseph Carson pleaded with Governor Julius Meyer to call out the National Guard. In response, the other local labor unions announced that if the National Guard were called out to help open the port, or if the employers resorted to armed violence in trying to get that done, they would call a general strike. Meyer was worried that the presence of the Guard could spark further violence, and decided that he'd only send the Guard if order broke down and they were needed to stop riots. His instincts were good. The presence of the Guard would definitely have emboldened the employer's side and probably would have led to an escalation. He had to also have been thinking about what would happen to him in the event of a general strike. 
Governor Julius Meyer was, of course, half of Meyer and Frank department stores, and although that was certainly not going to be his only consideration when trying to figure out whether he should deploy the National Guard or not, it had to have been on his mind. In any case, the Guard was not deployed, but after Wagner's car was fired on, the governor did order the National Guard to stand by at Camp Withicombe presumably to be ready in case the bumbling special police did something stupid again and started an actual riot. Well, by early July, both sides were worn down and eager for the strike to be over. So they agreed to let the federal government's National Longshoremen's Board arbitrate. The longshoremen went back to work, and eventually the deal that came through gave them most of what they'd wanted. And by the time President Roosevelt came to Oregon later that summer to dedicate the new Bonneville Dam, everything was back to normal on the waterfront. Key sources in this story have included works by E. Kimbark McCall, William Bigelow, and Roger Buchanan. That's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 500 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Other Offbeat Oregon goodies include an active Facebook page, a Twitter feed, a ton of historic photos, and a bunch more stuff. Plus a book, including visuals for today's show and full citations to sources. All these things are accessible via our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Facara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶